Most Holy Father, we come now to hear the preaching of your word unto the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Father, free me to open up the truth of your word in a way that accurately reflects your glory and your grace, that calls us to obedience, but still consoles us with your kindness. And Father, lend your power to the truth as it is preached. Awaken our dull hearts and make firm our distracted minds. Help us to fix the attention of our whole being on you and your grace for this moment in time. And so incline us to worship and love you more. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, friends, if you are just joining us, I'm Pastor Gordon, and we are studying through the book of 2 Peter. So as we begin, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it or turn it on, flip to, turn to, get to 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 11. And as we begin, I'm going to recollect something. So when I was in my time in Colorado, I know I refer to it a lot, but it's the most immediate memory I've got. So the last 10 years, uh, or 10 years ago, I, I served in Colorado, and we had a family there that was exceptionally kind and welcoming to us. Uh, his name was Harvey, and her name was Donna, and they welcomed us into their home repeatedly. They, they provided for us in lots of different ways, and I remember at one point he said to me, like, you have refrigerator privileges. I had never heard what that was. or I did not know what that meant. He said, it means if you ever need anything, you just come on in, open the refrigerator, and get it. And it was just this immense welcome, this warm, hospitable welcome. He would give it to more than just me. It wasn't as though we were the only ones that received it. They were an example of Christian hospitality. Hospitality is a Christian virtue. Friends, we are to be welcoming people, welcoming people who receive others around our table, who receive others into our home. Now, for the, some of us, we've been involved in hospitality ministry in a formal sense, and many of us, we've, we've engaged in hospitality just in our homes. And there are several challenges that attend hospitality. Space, for one. Sometimes you just don't have the space that you'd like to Welcome the kind of people that you've got coming in. Unexpected changes. Uh, things change at the last minute. All of a sudden, you don't have the thing that you thought that you had or need. But I think the biggest challenges that attend hospitality are people. Two kinds in particular. One sort, the folks who, despite your best efforts, simply never feel welcome. You do everything you can. You try and show them that you, you love them. They're, they're welcome here. You want them here. They just don't feel that way. But even more so, folks who aren't welcome but think they are. <laughs> In verses 10 through 11, Peter wants us not to find ourselves as the kind of people who expect to be but are not, in fact, welcome in God's kingdom. 
In verses 10 and 11, Peter wants us, he urges us not to find ourselves as the kind of people who expect to be, but are not in fact welcome in God's kingdom. Two weeks ago, we began this study of a mini-sermon at the beginning of Peter's second letter. Verses 3 to 11 teach us that becoming more like God is a basic and essential part of every Christian's life. First, we saw that godliness depends on grace and that the power to live a godly life comes from God. Then last week, we saw that while growing in godliness depends on grace, it requires real effort. This week, we will see why it is so critical that we be diligent to grow in grace. The reason is, is because godliness confirms your welcome in God's kingdom. Godliness confirms your welcome in God's kingdom. So our main idea today is do everything you can to confirm your calling and election so that you will be welcomed into God's kingdom. Do everything you can to confirm your calling and election so that you will be welcomed into God's kingdom. And I'm going to warn you about two things. <laughs> Thing number one, the introduction is long. But don't worry, not all points will be as long as the introductions. The introduction is mega point. And secondly, we're going to be talking about a number of things today which honestly require a lot of careful thought and study, and I won't be able to give the time that they deserve to them. And some of those things are things over which godly Christians disagree. You may be one of them. That's okay. And we're going to stick it together, and we're going to make it to the other end. Ready? All right, theological context. I have endeavored the last three weeks, and there remains a danger today, especially if you're a visitor, that you might mistake me, or even worse, the Apostle Peter, for saying that our salvation, in some sense, is based on our obedience and not on our faith. So I'm going to be clear. Scripture teaches... That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from our works. Scripture teaches salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from our works. That is the gospel. <laughs> that is the good news. The good news that God receives broken sinners like Gordon MacPhail and you and me entirely based on our faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The good news is that no Christian in any sense earns their way into God's eternal kingdom. But... That is not Peter's primary concern. There's lots of different kinds of errors that you'll see confronted in the New Testament. His listeners were not so much in danger of adding on religious requirements to the gospel, as you might see in Galatians, for instance. Instead, they were in danger of failing to keep or live in step with the gospel. 
they were in danger of jettisoning, jettisoning the commands of Christ. Peter's listeners were in danger of falling under the influence of false teachers who held that we may live as we like without any regard for God's commands and without any fear of his judgment. And we will see that as we get deeper and deeper into the epistle. And this is honestly not a temptation that we're unfamiliar with. It's a common thought in our day that if there is a God, he would like us to be happy rather than holy. This is why Peter chooses to emphasize our role in what is ultimately God's work of grace in, a, in salvation. So Peter is not teaching salvation by works. He is reminding us that a fruitful Christian life is the necessary proof of genuine and saving faith. Now, sometimes we get this confused, and this confusion might be arising in you, because in our efforts to be clear about the gospel, we sometimes miss or obscure the bigger picture of God's purpose in saving grace. Some theologians will divide salvation into parts. You don't, you don't have to, but we're talking about the big aspect, the grander picture of salvation. Salvation, if you consider it from beginning to end, has more or less five parts. First, predestination and election, wherein God decrees and determines in eternity past those whom he would save by his grace. Secondly, calling, wherein God effectually draws a sinner to himself by his word and by his spirit and gives him a new heart. That's often called regeneration. This is, that's why there's different, you could count this differently. Thirdly, justification, wherein God grants a sinner saving faith. And on the basis of that faith, declares him righteous through no work and no merit of his own. Fourth, sanctification, being made holy, wherein God progressively renews a believer creating more godly character over time. And finally, glorification, wherein God finally, perfectly renews a believer's body and soul in such a way that they are perfectly freed from sin and forever united to him. Some of you, I might even quote it later, but some of you have heard the old phrase, I have been saved from sin's penalty. I am being saved from sin's power. One day I will be saved from sin's presence. That is trying to grasp the sense that salvation is a, a massive effort, a big idea. I think that Peter is invoking this broader perspective by mentioning our calling and election in verse 10. So you can see that calling an election, verse 10. And then he mentions our welcome into God's kingdom in verse 11. Arguably, the whole passage is talking about sanctification. And in the very first verse, he mentions justification. So there's, there's this whole scope. He does this, these being the foundational and final aspects of God's purpose for us. He does this for two reasons. The first is, he wants to remind us 
that God's purpose in salvation goes beyond declaring us righteous. In other words, God doesn't only want to justify us. God wants to make us holy. So God's purpose in salvation goes beyond saving you from the penalty of your sin. He wants to make you like himself. He wants us to remember that Jesus died, not just so that we would escape sin's penalty, but also sin's power and ultimately sin's very presence. So Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He said, He himself, that is Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree in order that, that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. In short, there Peter is saying, you can't choose to disregard God's good commands and expect to claim the benefits of his grace or be welcomed into his kingdom. I'm going to say that again. You can't choose to disregard God's good commands and expect to claim the benefits of his grace or be welcomed into his kingdom. That's the first reason. There's more to salvation than just justification. It includes sanctification. He wants to make us holy. But secondly, Peter wants us to so prefer, to so want the promise of God's welcome and God's hospitality that we choose to live in obedience to Christ rather than chasing sinful pleasure. God wants us, Peter wants us, to so prefer the promise of God's welcome and God's hospitality that we willingly choose to obey Jesus rather than follow sinful pleasure. He wants us to say no to the pleasures of sin by remembering that we have a prior engagement. We have a prior appointment. We have been called to attend a better and a more enduring feast, the feast of God's eternal glory. And Peter knows how susceptible we are to temptations, to just looking at something and saying, this seems really good right now, I think I'll have this. And forgetting that greater promise. And he knows how constantly we encounter them, that the whole world around us is arrayed to convince us to exchange that feast for one that we can have right now. He doesn't want us to lose our stability in Christ. He doesn't want us to show up at the gate for the wedding feast and be turned away. So again, our main idea, that was the introduction, our main idea, do everything you can to confirm your calling and election so that you will be welcomed into God's kingdom. With that introduction, we're going to break our study into three questions. They're going to help us apply this text. The first is, what is meant by calling an election? The second will be, how do we confirm our calling an election? And the third will be, why must we diligently confirm our calling an election? So first, what is meant by calling an election? I mean, at least, two means of grace by which God effectively draws and saves his people. So look at verse 10. It says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For 
If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Calling is God's drawing sinners to hear, believe, and obey his gospel. A call occurs in one of two ways. Sometimes it happens simultaneously. So sometimes both of these are happening at the same time. A general call, the first kind, occurs whenever the gospel is shared or proclaimed. It is what I try and do every single Sunday. It's what you do when you share the gospel with your neighbor. It's a call to believe and to submit to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You can see Peter do it in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. He's preaching to the religious leaders, and he commands them. He says, repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. That is a general call, saying, y'all need to repent and believe in Jesus so that your sins will be forgiven. An effectual call is something that God alone can do. I can't do it. You can't do it. It is how God draws sinners to truly hear his gospel and respond with repentance and faithful obedience. This is what Peter is talking about in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, when he describes God's people saying, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Friends, this is an aside at this point here. Christians don't have a duty to convert sinners. Christians have a duty to call sinners to repent. We, we have a duty to just share the gospel. We're, we're to call people and say, this is Jesus. Believe in him, obey him, follow him. That's what we're to do. God converts sinners. So don't let a lack of training stop you from sharing your faith. Or don't let the fact that you stumble over your words cause you to not share your faith. Or don't let the fact that you're afraid that it might not go well or that this person might not think well of you stop you from sharing your faith because you don't have to convert them. It's not your job. You just call them. Many of us know, I, I am certain of it, that many of you know that it was not the first time that someone told you the gospel that you believed in it. You were probably called to respond to the gospel many, many, many times, and then one time, and for many of us, you know that one time, you know that moment. Some of us can look and say, that was the moment that the gospel came alive. That's the effectual call. That's when God is at work in your soul. So friends, that's calling. Election refers 
to God's sovereign and secret decision in eternity past to save some. Now, some Christians think about this one way, and some Christians think about this another way. That's okay. Some of you are probably of the one camp. Some of you are probably of the other camp. Some Christians believe that God's election refers to an indefinite group, just a group that will meet certain conditions. I and some others think differently. We think that election refers to God's secret but sovereign decree to save every member of his church whom he specifically foreknew in eternity past. Now, as an EFCA church, we believe this is something over which members can lovingly and graciously disagree while continuing to serve together in harmony. You don't have to see it the way that I see it as based on my reading of scripture. And frankly, in this particular case, whether one view or the other is accurate, in this particular case, is somewhat beside the point. Because Peter is not calling us to try and penetrate the mystery of God's secret will. Instead, Peter is calling us to confirm our calling and election, which leads us to our second question. How do we confirm our calling and election? We do it by diligently practicing godliness. We do it by diligently practicing godliness. So look again at verse 10. It says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And friends, this is one of the more common questions that I've received as a pastor. Is, pastor, how can I know if I'm elect? How can I know if I'm called? How can I know if the work of God's grace is alive in my heart? And this is a really worthy question. And it's often laced with deep spiritual anxiety. The reason that someone is asking that question is not usually simply for intellectual curiosity, although sometimes it can be. Usually it's being asked because of a deep disturbance in the soul, genuine concern. The way to have assurance that God has called you to himself is not through some kind of spiritual sorcery, but it's by using available evidence to reveal the indwelling work of God's Spirit. We do this by simply observing whether or not you love God, whether you want to become godly, and whether you're willing to work at it. Do you want to love God? Do you love God? Are you willing to work at it? Will you hear loving correction? Do you seek out godly instruction? Do you, as God gives you occasion, and as God gives you ability, love and serve others? If so, simply put, you can have confidence of your calling and your election. One tip here, try not to measure your progress or your faithfulness simply week to week. In fact, I'd even recommend not measuring it month to month. As we grow older, we have greater and greater opportunity to witness God's faithfulness in our life. 
is one of the many advantages and blessings of growing old in the faith. Look in terms of seasons. If any of you were to ask my wife, she would probably say that in the last nine months, the Lord has been working me over something special and that you could see fairly dramatic growth within the last nine months. But most of the time, what I end up having to measure against is five years ago. Ask yourself whether, you know, would the Gordon of five years ago have responded in this situation in a more or less godly way? Uh, if the more years you have to look back, the better opportunity you have to judge whether God is working in you progressive growth in grace and godliness. So here's another way to get at the same answer to that question. Another way to get at it is to test your affections, your heart's affections, meaning do you love God and are you growing to love what God loves and hate what God hates? Listen to this passage from Romans 7, verses 18 and 19. Paul is talking about the struggle of trying to follow God, which is quite the struggle. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Can you identify with that? Can you identify with, say, I want to do the right thing. Why is it so hard to do the right thing? Notice that Paul says he wants to do what is good. Even if he struggles and often fails to do good. Now, why is that significant? That's significant because what the Bible calls the mind of the flesh or the mind that has not been changed by God's Holy Spirit, that mind is not interested in godliness. The mind of the flesh, the heart of an unbeliever, is not concerned with godliness just as they are not truly and deeply grieved by sin. While they might be willing to pursue one or more means of self-improvement, they have no real interest in pleasing God because they neither know him nor do they love him. Their heart is indifferent to the things of God because they're preoccupied with the things of this world. And Paul says this in Romans 8, verse 5. He says, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That just means the things of this life. They're interested, in, they're interested in cars. They're interested in their family. They're interested in success. They're interested in having a good meal. They're interested in feeling good and having a good time and living this life. Like that. They're interested in the things of this world. But those who live according to their spirit, to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. So this then, friends, is one of the surest proofs of God's calling and election and grace in a person's life. A growing hatred of sin that's braced by a willingness to face it and put it to death alongside a deepening love and longing for God. Friend, if you want to be godly, 
And if you are diligently giving yourself time and again to following Christ, you can have good confidence of your calling and your election. If you're grieved by your sin and you're delighted by Christ, that is the chief mark of the work of the Spirit of God in your heart. Another aside, another important observation that's based on this passage that we should note here is that godliness is not the basis, but is rather the evidence of our calling and our election. In other words, God does not call us because we are godly. God calls us, we are godly because God calls us. God calls us because he is good, not because we're good. And God makes us good to reflect himself. Growing obedience is what reveals the truth of God's work. It's how we and others can be confident that we've been truly and effectively called by God and chosen to share in his glory. So there is here, I'm sure you can feel it both in this passage and elsewhere, a tension between the sovereign, gracious, and irrevocable call of God and the necessary, immediate requirement for our obedience. These two things are what theologians sometimes call an antinomy. Antinomy. I can't even pronounce it right. Antinomy. Two truths that are not, in fact, contradictory, but which do not neatly reconcile with each other. They are both true. It doesn't seem like they can both be true, but they are true. God chooses us, and he ensures that we get to heaven. We need to choose God and live godly lives so that we can reach heaven. Both things are true. And that brings up a quote from a very good book, if you have a chance to read it, J.C. Ryle's Holiness. On page 67, he says, I know that people are fond of talking about deathbed evidences. They will rest on words spoken in the hours of fear and pain and weakness as if they might take comfort in them about the friends they lose. But I am afraid that in 99 cases out of 100, such evidences are not to be depended on. I suspect that with rare exceptions, men die just as they lived. The only safe evidence that we are one with Christ and Christ in us is a holy life. Those who live unto the Lord are generally the only people who die in the Lord. If we would die the death of the righteous, let us not rest in slothful desire only. Let us seek to live his life. I say that not to discourage you, but to point out what this picture is that Peter is drawing. To, to be diligent, to make your calling and election sure, is a lifelong discipline. Most people, not all, but most people, die as they live. Let's gain confidence by living for Christ. So thirdly, the big, next big point is, why must we diligently confirm our calling and election? Why must we do it? Two reasons. One, so that we will not fall. And two, so that we will be welcomed into God's eternal kingdom. So in verses 10 and 11, P 
Peter provides two reasons why we should be eager to confirm our calling by practicing godly character. In verse 10, he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For, this is the first reason, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, two, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. First, we should take godliness seriously so that we will not fall. Now, sometimes this word fall, that gets translated fall here, sometimes this word is used simply as a synonym for sin. But that can't be its meaning here. Because every Christian, no matter how faithfully we pursue godliness, will still struggle with ongoing and indwelling sin. So therefore, we can conclude that this means here, in this passage, to fall beyond recovery. It means to be ruined, to be utterly lost, to be lost to grace. This is probably what Jude is talking about in verse 24. Peter wants us to be, as it were, spared a disastrous coming to grief. Perhaps a parallel parable would be the parable that Jesus tells of the virgins who did not prepare for the coming of their Lord. So they didn't have enough oil, so they had to leave. And they were not there when the bridegroom came. And when they came and they knocked on the door, he says, go away from me. I know you not, you workers of lawlessness. Peter never wants any of us to hear those words. I don't want anyone sitting in this room ever to hear those words from Christ. Now, this makes it sound as if someone might lose their salvation. This makes it sound as though someone can fall from grace. And while I do not think that the scriptures teach that is the case, the question rises, if so, then why the warning? Well, firstly, because while it is not possible, as I understand Scripture, to lose your salvation, it is very possible for someone who is actually an unbeliever to be mistaken about their salvation. And this is why I think Paul commands the church, specifically the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. So the first reason is because it is absolutely possible, certainly in a room this size, that someone has gone on thinking that they are in fact saved when they have no proof of their calling or their election. They have no grounds for confidence in their salvation. And Peter wants to warn you. And by that warning, to stir you up to seek out and confirm your calling and your election so that it would be made sure. So the first reading is it's a warning. The second is God not only warns the lost, God also warns his children. God uses many means, including warnings, to keep his people from falling into destruction. Friends, an obedient child hears their parents' warning and they heed it. Uh, sometime in second grade, someone, you know, who is trying to be smart 
uh, said to me, you know, like, well, you know, your parents have told you that the oven is hot, but how do you know? And my answer might seem foolish, but it was because my mama told me so. And they're like, no, 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 you got to test it. You can't, you can't, you can't trust them. I'm like, yes, yes, you can. And God's children hear God's voice. And when God says, that's hot, don't touch, we go, it's hot. We're not going to touch it. <laughs> A child is protected by God's warnings. And the unbeliever might be saved by his warnings. Friends, God uses many medicines to fit our souls for heaven. Some medicines drive us from sin, but others draw us to himself. Now, some of us were drawn to Christ because we saw the beauty and the glory of the gospel. We wanted it and we came to it. But some of us fled the fire of hell. God uses many medicines to bring his children to himself. So a few words before we move on about assurance here. First, assurance is almost never absolute. And what I mean by that is assurance is almost never perfectly unmixed with doubt. Jude will remind us to be merciful to those who doubt. And doubts arise for a host of reasons that require careful discernment and often require different responses. Sometimes doubts arise because of outright disobedience, from secret sins, from a lack of knowledge of God's promises, from misunderstanding suffering, sometimes simply from lack of sleep, even mental health issues. This is just to name a few reasons why Christians might experience doubts but just because assurance is rarely absolute does not mean that assurance is unattainable. Nor should we despise it, thinking that assurance is not valuable or that assurance is not essential. Christian assurance is, if anything, a matter of spiritual warfare. Satan wants to undermine it. That's why he casts fiery doubts at our weaknesses to try and discourage us from holding up the shield of faith, our confidence in Christ. So while assurance does require diligent labor, this passage gives us confidence that assurance is as possible as it is necessary. You can know that God's grace is alive and at work in you. So, friends, while we must make every effort to do so, still our calling can be confirmed. We can have confidence of God's grace. And the way Peter closes out this passage is actually not with a warning. It's by granting us assurance of the future grace that God promises. He gives us a tantalizing picture of what God has prepared for those who come to him. God is going to fill our lives with unquenchable joy. And that's how he fills us with steadfast determination to persevere to the end. Look at verse 11 one more time. He says, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me just draw two observations before we close. First is, the welcome will be provided. And sometimes when you go over to someone's house, you may choose to bring a gift. 
as a kind of token of gratitude. Or oftentimes people, when, I, when we invite them over our house, say, what can we bring? You know, and sometimes the best news on the other end of that line is, just bring yourselves. That's what Jesus says. Partly because it's all we've got. Everything we have to offer, God already gave us. Everything we bring him is just a gift of his grace. What can we bring him? As it was in Jesus' parable of the wedding feast, so it is here. Remember how he sent out to certain people and they refused the invitation to the wedding? So then what does the king do? He sends his servants. He says, go, find the poor, the, li- the lame, the blind, the beggars. Tell them to come to the feast. That's who we are, friends. We're the poor. We're the beggars. We're the lame. We're the blind. We're the people that didn't have the clothes. And he welcomes us in and he gives us the wedding clothes that we need. He's going to bring us in, gather us in, cleanse us, and clothe us in his abundant grace. The good news of the gospel is that to inherit God's kingdom, you need to have only come by way of the cross. God provides all the rest. So the welcome will be provided. The second thing that you note is that the welcome will be rich. Friends, I, I can't put on a very big spread I've been to some people's houses. They can put on a really big spread. This is hospitality like you've never experienced. This is a feast like you can only imagine. Isaiah begins to capture it in Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 and 8. He says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined, and he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Friends, on that day, the Lord will dress you finally and perfectly in his mighty righteousness. He will satisfy you with the riches of his mercy. He will restore your soul. He will wipe away your tears. He will wash your feet. He will set you at his table forever. Remember how David finds out about the last remaining descendant of Saul, Mephibosheth? who has been crippled by an accident. And he sends out throughout the kingdom, find this man, bring him to my table. And he says, you have a seat at my table until you die. I'm going to provide for you. And that's, the, that's the generosity of a king. He, he searches out throughout the land. He finds you. He calls you. He draws you. He clothes you. And he brings you to his table. And he says, feast at my table. Feast at my table forever. As long as I live, you have a place at this table. And friends, that welcome is worth living for. That welcome is worth striving for. That welcome is worth sacrificing for. That welcome is worth dying for. That is the kind of kindness that cannot be eclipsed. That is the kind of unending joy, glory, and reward that this world simply cannot offer. It is possible to have assurance today of what God has promised you tomorrow in the next kingdom. That assurance comes first of all by looking back to the cross 
and to eternity past by knowing that Christ Jesus died to effectively call and draw and save and sanctify every member of God's chosen people so that they would one day be welcomed into his kingdom. But it also comes by knowing and believing that God has provided everything we need for a godly life. And by trusting his great and precious promises, we know he will never leave us, he will never forsake us, but it also must come by making every effort to grow in grace. We need to be all the more diligent to confirm our calling and election because if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So my brothers and my sisters, my dear friends who I love in Christ, strive to enter that rest. Do everything you can to confirm your calling and election so that you will be welcomed into God's eternal kingdom. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Most Holy Father, your apostle calls us to make certain our calling and election by grace, through faith, but with great labor. That we are weak and wayward. We are often tossed by doubts and fears, and so we cry out for your help. Come to our aid, O mighty King, and lend us your strength that we may strive, faith that we might believe, love that we might endure. Please work and will within us so that we may work and will unto your good pleasure. And so bring us and set us with all your saints at that great feast in your eternal kingdom for your unending glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.